what we like to share will become very relevant. We are in a teaching series called Radical, Ephesians for Misfits. And the reason why we're in this series in particular is because we are in a refresh season as a church. We have regrouped 35 missional adults. Woo! That's exciting. And we are refocusing on our vision, our mission, and our values as a church. We're asking questions like, what does it really mean to be a community of misfits? Or what does it mean to really find our identity in Jesus? And that's why we're using this spelling of radical and not the more common spelling. This is a term from botany for a plant, or the part of a plant, that becomes the primary root of the plant. And that feels like a really apt metaphor for where we're at as a church. And that's also a really good reason why we're studying the book of Ephesians, because the book of Ephesians is unique among uh, the letters of Paul. The letters of Paul typically deal with some of the everyday challenges of the local church, which is good, but Ephesians is more like a 10,000 foot view of all that Paul is teaching the churches that he's planting about Jesus, about the church, and about the gospel. So for our purposes, Ephesians reads a little bit like a misfit manifesto. And I like saying that every week. It's fun to say. And it's also where our seed verse is found as a church. Our seed verse is in chapter 3. It's about power and about love being rooted and established in love. So last week, we looked at the first half of chapter 2. And the first half of chapter 2, we were talking about what is it? What does this phrase, faith in Christ, mean? Faith in Christ. Now we saw that for Paul and the first century church, faith was all about whole life transformation. A transformation of our allegiances, the allegiance of our hearts and our lives. It meant entering into a vital connectedness with the living God. Doesn't start, doesn't stop on Sundays, but it affects one's whole way of being in the world. Well, this week we're going to finish out chapter 2 with verses 11 through 22. And we'll see that a critical part of this whole life transformation that we're talking about, faith in Christ, that gets minimized in the modern Western world, is that being included in Christ also means necessarily being added to Jesus' diverse family. That's an essential part of what it means to be in Christ. So now, fellow Jesus disciples become sisters and brothers in an alternative social network. A different kind of human community. So that's why this week, um, and every week, we said our vision, or mission, vision and mission, to be a new people. We want to be a new people rooted in Christ. And so, uh, this is not an optional part of what it means to be a Christian. This is not an addition, some you know, bonus points. You get bonus points if you go to church. We are church. To be included in Christ is to become part of the body of Christ. It's not optional. But before you tune me out and say, look, I'm already here at Roots, TC. Like, I get it. I go to a diverse church. You don't have to keep preaching diverse church to me. 
This morning, I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach to Ephesians chapter 2. It might be uh, something you've never heard before. Um, it might be a little challenging. I'll be honest with you, it was challenging to me the first time I heard it. But remember what I said last week. That's part of the plan. Every once in a while, I'm going to teach things that you're going to have to wrestle with. You might disagree with me. That's okay. We can disagree. Let's wrestle with the text together. Let's learn from one another, hear different perspectives, and learn how to disagree well. Isn't that something we need to do? Disagree well. So, um, and also I said last week, this is, this is good to remember, is that it might be painful at first, but pain is an indicator that you're growing. Like my drill sergeant used to say in Bad Kid Boot Camp, he used to say, pain is just weakness leaving your body. Yes, that's what he used to say. So, let's wrestle with this text together this morning. But before we do that, before we dive into the text, let's pray for the Spirit's illumination of the text. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit of God, Spirit who is poured out on all flesh, women and men, young and old, every culture, every ethnicity, would you be poured out once again in our midst here today? Would you fill us afresh with your wind and with your fire? Would you open the eyes of our hearts and our minds to see what you're up to in the world? We pray for your wisdom, your presence, and your power. In the name of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, so our text this morning is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It's true. And it's a particularly dense passage because Paul mixes a lot of metaphors in a very short span of verses. So for that reason, it could be a bit confusing. A couple things to keep in mind. He's going to be talking about two groups, Jews and Gentiles. And he's going to be talking about three metaphors primarily. Now there's a few others, but these are the three primary metaphors. Citizenship is a big metaphor in this passage. Proximity, closeness or, or, or uh, farness, if that's a word. And temple as a gathering place, as a dwelling place for God's spirit. So the Gentiles are being included into the covenant of the promise made to Abraham. They are newcomers to this. Like being newcomers to a country. And they receive citizenship, the belonging and the responsibilities of that, right? And they are like someone who's been far off and have been brought near. And they are like, together with the Jews, they are like a space created by God where God's spirit dwells like a temple. Okay, so now that we have a bit of a map, let's survey the territory. Starting in verse 11, you can, uh, you feel free to look on in your own translation of the Bible if you have a smart device or an old-fashioned paper device, or you can look on the screen. That works too. Starting in verse 11, chapter 2. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. Can we say that together? One new humanity. That's, that's a love, I love that phrase. Out of the two. Thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. By which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Amen. That is a beautiful passage. I think it's a powerful passage, very rich and full of imagery. One of the things that makes this passage particularly interesting to me and meaningful to me is because for too long in the modern Western world, the individual has reigned supreme so that Jesus' atoning death, atoning means reconciling or bringing together, joining with God. Jesus' atoning death has been about absolving individuals of guilt. That's what it's been about. And yes, Christ's death does that. But to reduce the entire life, death, resurrection of Jesus to that, by this passage is proven to be incomplete. God is up to a lot more in Jesus and his cross than just absolving our hearts of the guilty feelings, right? This passage shows us that Jesus didn't take on flesh, live a life of love, healing people, and proclaiming the gospel, dying and rising again, just so that we would have our sins taken away. But it shows that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God was creating a new type of human community and making peace between peoples who were at enmity with one another. So this passage shows that the gospel has a social dimension, necessarily so. Not additionally, like we often talk about it, well, the gospel is for me and my sins, and then if I wanna to go to church, if I wanna reconcile with people that are different than me, that's bonus points, right? I get, I get extra crowns in heaven for that, right? That's not what this passage says. It says, in the cross and in Jesus himself, in his body, God was up to creating a new type of human community. So, this means that God was destroying the divisions that we see in our world. God was setting aside dead orthodoxy for a living faith, a living way of faith. God was building a temple out of people where his spirit would dwell. God was establishing God's reign on earth as in heaven. God was creating a new people, 
a community of misfits, right? A community of misfits finding identity in Jesus. Now, that might be old hat to a lot of us. We go, yeah, yeah, heard that before. And, uh, and look, I'm here. I'm here at Roots TC. I get it. But here's where churches like ours, churches that are ethnically diverse and, and, uh, and other forms of diversity, this is where our churches can fall into a trap. Here's the trap that churches like ours can fall into. You ready for this? Multiculturalism. Multiculturalism is a trap. I see some of your faces. That's, that was my face. <laughs> Multiculturalism. Uh, put away your stones for a second. Please don't stone me. Multiculturalism. Uh, actually, the first time I heard someone critique multiculturalism, I was really confused. I was like, what's the alternative? Go back to homogenous church? That's not even an option. So why am I saying that multiculturalism could be a trap? Here's, here's why. Multiculturalism could be a way of us saying, we want to gather people of different cultures together in one church so that we can appreciate each other's culture like we're scientists studying one another. Multiculturalism could be a way of saying, I appreciate your culture as long as you keep it away from my culture, as long as you keep it at a safe distance over there. Multiculturalism can be a way of reinforcing the mistaken notion that cultures are like hermetically sealed boxes that never mix and mingle with one another. It could be a way of reinforcing those dividing walls that this passage talks about. In fact, cultures are not static at all. Cultures are very, very dynamic. And what this passage shows us, what Paul and the Spirit are teaching us, is that different people of different ethnicities and cultures are joined with one another in a new type of human community that destroys those dividing walls. People who have been joined to this new humanity, there are no longer merely Greek, or merely Jewish, or merely Ethiopian, they become more than that. Not less than that, but more than that. So Dr. Brian Bantam uh, is a theology professor at Seattle Pacific University. He did his PhD work at Duke Divinity with the likes of J. Cameron Carter and Willie James Jennings, giants in theology. And he is pictured here with his wife, Gail Song Bantam, who is the executive pastor at Quest Church in Seattle, one of our sibling multi-ethnic covenant churches. Um, and I don't know if Dr. Bantam considers himself a covenanter, but since his wife is a covenanter, I claim him as part of our, he's covenant adjacent, so I claim him. And um, Brian Bantam was one of the first scholars that I heard articulate this criticism of multiculturalism. And he proposed an alternative goal for multi-ethnic churches that he calls cultural hybridity. And, he, and I think that he's really on to something important. Brian Bantam is biracial. And from his social location, remember we talked about social location last week? Um, it's where we're contextualized in history. 
in culture, in, in ge geography, and ethnicity, all those things. From his social location as a biracial theologian, he's been able to identify a critical flaw in the way that some multi-ethnic churches approach this thing that is called uh, multiculturalism. Here's the flaw. Multiculturalism entices us to preserve our cultures from one another instead of sharing our cultures with one another. This tempts us to think of our cultures as needing to be protected from one another rather than seeing them as beautiful gifts that we get to share with one another. We think of culture sometimes as a zero-sum game. If I'm going to adopt some of your culture, I'm going to lose some of my culture. Zero-sum game. But that idea is flawed. In fact, all of our cultures are mixed up. All of our cultures are dynamic. They are adaptive. They are changing all the time. Want some evidence? I'll give you some evidence. The Apostle Paul is very proud of his Jewish heritage. He calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's like bragging. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. But Paul was part of something called the Diaspora. And the Diaspora are Jews who live outside the Jewish homeland. He lived in Tarsus, remember? That's not, that's not Galilee. That's not Jerusalem. He lived in Tarsus. So he's part of the Diaspora. And we know from his writings that he quotes the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. What language was the Old Testament written in? Mostly Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic. But the Septuagint was a translation into Greek. And that's the Bible that Paul carried around, the Septuagint. This is an example, one of the prime examples of something called Hellenization. Hellenization was the Greekification of all these other cultures being brought under the Greek umbrella. Greek was the uh, lingua franca of the day. It was the language that everyone spoke. It's kind of like English today. A lot of people speak English as their second language, right? All around the world. It's taught in schools to be like the language of commerce, the language of business, right? But Paul did not see his cultural hybridity as a drawback. Paul saw his cultural hybridity as an asset. Here's what he says about it to the Corinthians. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I have become weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. Isn't that powerful? He sees his cultural hybridity as a way of sharing in the blessings of the gospel. Cultural hybridity also shows up in, in two of my professors uh, from seminary, Dr. Sunchan Ra and Dr. Eldon Viafanye. Dr. Ra is a Korean-American covenanter, yes, another covenanter, church planter, professor at North Park, and he writes about 
W.E.B. Du Bois' concept of double consciousness. Du Bois talks about double consciousness that African Americans must deal with the reality of not being totally accepted in white society and having to behave in certain ways in the broader society at large while behaving in other ways in their own cultural setting of the black community. He calls this double consciousness. In some ways, African Americans feel like insiders in America, and in some ways, African Americans feel like outsiders in America. That's double consciousness. Then Dr. Villafane, he, he, he goes a step further. He says, well, I am a second-generation English-speaking Puerto, Ric Puerto Rican-American, so I got triple consciousness. He said, I feel like an insider and an outsider in the dominant Anglo culture, and then I feel like an insider and outsider to my first generation parents and grandparents. So I've got triple consciousness. And then, of course, this extends to uh, children and grand grandchildren uh, of, of uh, biracial children, right? Biracial children, like mine, have a double consciousness or a triple consciousness, feeling like insiders and outsiders. This also extends to third culture kids. Where's Tim? Third culture kids like Emily and Tim, parents of are children of missionaries who grew up in other countries and then came to the States as adults. They feel like insiders and outsiders, all jumbled up. There's so many different ways to feel like a misfit, right? So many different ways. But in all of this, what I want us to see is that culture is not static. Culture is very dynamic. Culture is always mixing up. And the goal of the multi-ethnic church needs to not be multiculturalism if that is a temptation for us to build those dividing walls back up. But our goal should instead be cultural hybridity that destroys the dividing wall. I think my, my friend Jose Humphreys, who's a pastor in East Harlem, and he released a, a new book recently called Seeing Jesus in East Harlem. I think he puts it really well. Here's what he says. We are called to be God's experiment in how people stay together in a divided world. Now more than, ever, more than ever, whether churches are in the city, town, or country, we need churches that will dismantle the walls of hostility that keep us apart, uncoiling people from shame and hiding, allowing God's very good news to unfurl us all into our full humanity as image bearers. I love that. It's very powerful imagery. So Ephesians 2 is teaching us that Jesus has created the church as a new kind of human community that destroys every dividing wall. And if that's true, then multiculturalism can't be our goal. We must, if it, if it inadvertently props up those walls. Instead, cultural hybridity is a better way of thinking about this, uh, this new kind of community. Of course, the operative question now is how? How do you do it, right? It's one thing to talk about this in theory, but if we only talk about it in theory, then it's just wishful thinking, right? We need concrete pathways. We need ways to actually do this thing called cultural hybridity. So I want to suggest four concrete pathways. But before we get to those pathways, <laughs> I think it's important that we talk about how these, this can go horribly and terribly wrong. <laughs> we must talk about the dangers of 
cultural hybridity first. First danger of cultural hybridity is culture blindness. Remember we talked about this a few weeks back. Dr. Christina Cleveland in her book, Disunity in Christ, which I can't recommend more highly. Best book, uh, one of the best books on the subject ever written. Dr. Christina Cleveland talks about how we need to find our identity in Jesus as our most important identity. Here's what she says. We need to adopt the belief that to be a follower of Christ means to care deeply and about and pursue other followers of Christ, including the ones that we don't instinctively value or like. This entails allowing our identity as members of the body of Christ to trump all other identities. It also entails commitment to the body of Christ above our own identity and self-esteem needs. We've coped with our divisions long enough. It's time for us to discover our true identities as members of the body of Christ. It's time for us to rally around this identity, overcoming our divisions and change the world. But this common identity can be misused. It can be misused as a cover-up for the perpetuation of white cultural normativity. Remember when I talked about Dr. Richard Twist? Dr. Richard Twist uh, was a Native American theologian, is a Native American theologian, and when he was trying to navigate what does it mean to be a Native person in America and a follower of Jesus, he went to a white pastor and he said, how do I do this? And the white pastor said, don't worry about that stuff, Richard. Just be like us. And that's a way for this cultural hybridity to become a cover-up for white cultural normativity. So, Christina Cleveland is equally as clear that culture blindness is not what she's advocating. She writes, the idea of a common in-group identity that trumps all subordinate identities might seem to suggest that we should all relinquish our cultural identities and ignore our cultural differences. However, to do this would violate the metaphor of the body of Christ, in which each group expresses its unique perspective and function in coordination with other groups and in submission to the head, Jesus Christ. Watch this. Culture blindness is simply disunity disguised. It falls short of the unity which we have been called, to which we have been called. So, those of us who are considered white by Americans, by American racialized society, we have a responsibility to guard our sisters and brothers away from cultural erasure, the erasure of unique cultures and different cultures, and guard ourselves from denying the reality of our assumptions about white cultural normativity. That's our responsibility. Now, the second way that this can go terribly, terribly wrong is cultural appropriation. Cultural appropriation is when someone participates in a cultural practice that they aren't, that is not their own, and they aren't invited into, and they don't acknowledge. Let me say that again. It's when someone participates in a cultural practice that is not their own, that they're not invited into, and they don't acknowledge. That is, that is my definition of cultural appropriation. And it's especially important for members of the dominant culture in America for us to understand how hurtful this really is. How disempowering and disrespectful it really is. 
Because if you're a member of the dominant culture, you're used to everything being available to you at your disposal. And so the idea that something is off limits to you can feel very offensive. What do you mean I can't use that word? I think, I think my people invented that word. We should be able to use it. No, you don't get to use it. What do you mean I can't wear that dress? Can I get an amen? Can I get a well? Something. <laughs> I've been able to say whatever I want all my life. I've been able to wear whatever I want all my life. When members of the dominant culture express things like that, what we communicate is that we have now understood the immense amount of privilege that we actually have. The immense amount of access and the disparity of access that we have relative to our sisters and brothers of color. So, now, okay, we've done the two of the big ways that cultural hybridity can go terribly, terribly wrong. Take a deep breath, and um, if I haven't caused you to throw your hands up in despair and say, it's all doomed, we can't do this, then I have not done a good enough job of presenting you with all the challenges that are real in multi-ethnic church. But who's to say that challenging things aren't worth it? Challenging things can be worth it. Completing an education program, some of, some of us have done that. Was that challenging? Matt, was it challenging to finish med school? <laughs> Matt's like, no, I flew through med school. But it's worth it. Showing up week after week at your place of work is challenging, but it's worth it. Singleness can be challenging, but if you're called to that, <laughs> I got an amen, but if you're called to that, that's, that's worth it. Maintaining strong friendships is definitely challenging, right? I, I saw, oh, this is a total side note, I saw a meme that said, we don't talk enough about the miracle of Jesus having 12 close friends in his 30s, <laughs> right? That's serious. Marriage can be challenging. Marriage is worth it. Parenting is challenging. Parenting is worth it. Following Jesus is challenging, but it's worth it. So, like all these other challenging aspects of our lives, multi-ethnic community is worth it. So, what are these concrete pathways? How are we gonna do this? I wanna suggest four, starting with number one. The first concrete pathway is worshiping together. And you go, duh. That seems obvious, but it's not. It's actually not. More and more today, I run into people who say, I love Jesus, Jesus is awesome. It's just the church I hate. <laughs> right? Am I wrong? I meet somebody every day that says that. So it's not a given that we will worship together, that we will show up week in, week out, when we get hurt, when our feelings get hurt, when we rub each other the wrong way, when we're annoyed by one another, that we will worship together. That's not a given. That's something we have to work hard at. And Jesus didn't die just so that you could have a really good Devo in the morning. That's not why he died. This passage tells us that in his flesh, he made peace between Jews and Gentiles, all ethnic groups, and formed a new human family. That's why Jesus died. So every Sunday, 
as we gather together as the community of misfits, we celebrate this peace that Jesus has made. We celebrate the destroying of the dividing walls. And as we worship together, we form a common identity in the Messiah. Remember that vision that John of Patmos saw? He saw people from every tribe and nation, every tongue, every ethnicity, worshiping Jesus together. They worshiped Jesus together. So our worship needs to be like that heavenly vision. We need to be free to express worship to the Lamb in our native tongues, in our native means of worship. My dream for Roots would be that this is a place of joyous exhibition of our various diverse modes of cultural worship. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be awesome if Roots became known as a place where it was safe to express your worship to God the way God made you. That would be awesome. And wouldn't that be a powerful witness that God's reign has come to earth? One of the most powerful ways that the early church worshipped together was they ate together. They, they had what's called love feasts. One of the ways that they, this is one of the ways that they invited one another into each other's cultures. Because our food is a primary artifact of our cultures. And when you invite someone, when you cook for someone, and when you invite someone to eat your food, you invite them into your culture. This is why big portions of Romans and Corinthians are about eating meat. Because there was squabbles in the early church over, can I eat that? Am I supposed to eat that? Because they were sharing their foods with one another. So once a month, here at, New, here at uh, Roots Covenant Church, we want to have a potluck Sunday, once a month. And I want to see all the different cultural representations of our foods at those potlucks. I want to see us bring a piece of ourselves to the table and share it with one another. That is one of the concrete pathways to cultural hybridity. Here's another one. A powerful way for us to share our cultures with one another is to tell our stories. Our stories are powerful because our stories include descriptions of practices, customs, clothing, language, our family histories. And I've witnessed the power of these stories firsthand. When I, when I lived in LA, we, we formed intentionally diverse groups all summer long and we took turns just listening to one person's story. Everyone just gather around and listen to one person's story from their cultural perspective. And you weren't allowed to interrupt. You weren't allowed to disagree. Because everyone's experience is their experience. You can't disagree with another person's experience. That's how they experienced it. But you weren't allowed to ask clarifying questions. I want to get to know you better. So we took turns doing this. And there was one uh, white woman in my group. And when everyone else had shared, she was the last one to share. And she said, I'm 25 years old. And this summer is the first time in my life I've ever had to think about race. She grew up in a predominantly white suburb of LA, in a predominantly white neighborhood. She, she attended predominantly white schools, including a Christian college. And she never thought about race until she heard someone else's story from their perspective. So once a month, we want to have something here at Roots called Dialogue Sunday, where instead of 
this long message from Pastor TC or someone else, we're gonna have discussion groups around tables. Well, they'll be facilitated and we'll have uh, some framing statements and framing uh, messages, but we wanna hear from one another. We wanna hear different perspectives on the text. Because I truly believe that you cannot understand the text until you've understood the text from different perspectives. So that's another concrete pathway to cultural identity. Number three is kind of abstract. You're gonna have to bear with me here. The third pathway is what I'm calling step up, step back. Now I got this from um, uh, conversation facilitation. Sometimes in a, in a group setting, there are people who take up more space in that group than others. Extroverts, big personalities, talkative people, and you gotta say to yourself, okay, I want everyone in this group to have an opportunity to share. Am I one of those people that's gonna overshare? If you're one of those people that's gonna overshare, step back. Now, other people in a group are gonna naturally be a little bit of a wallflower, right? They're gonna hang back. If you're one of those people, and you know that you might just not say anything the whole time, you need to step up. Take a little bit more space in that group. Share your culture with other people in that group. That's stepping up. Stepping up and stepping back is also a metaphor for how much space you take up in society. It's a way of talking about privilege. It's a way of talking about access. Jesus was privileged. Did you know that? Jesus was the son of God. That's a very high privilege. But Jesus used his privilege in a very humble way. Philippians 2 says he did not grasp onto his privilege as the son of God. He did not cling to it, but instead he lived a life that empowered those who were disempowered. And that's how he demonstrated love. So each time we come to the Lord's table, we remember not only Jesus' death, we remember his cruciform life, his cross-shaped life, that all throughout his ministry, he lived a life where he put others first and he lifted up the vulnerable and he empowered the disempowered. So once a month, we're gonna to come to the table together and we're gonna remember that Jesus' life was cross-shaped and we are called to live cross-shaped lives. We are called to lay down and counteract the ways in which we are privileged in society. That's the third cultural pathway, cultural um, hybridity pathway. Number four, last one, showing up for one another. Showing up for one another in each other's lives is a powerful way that we enter into and share each other's cultures. Some of you know this, but maybe some of you don't, but this past week, um, on Tuesday, was it on Tuesday? Uh, Wednesday. Well, Tuesday night, the leadership team of Roots gathered together and I was sharing with them that sometimes Oshita and I feel like when, when things are going well, when we're feeling energized, when we're feeling like, okay, Roots is getting some momentum, all of a sudden, out of left field, there's some sort of accident. There's some sort of like, you know, de derailment from that train, right? For example, we had a really energizing time. Um, I can't remember where it was, but she and I were feeling pumped. She left and someone rear-ended her and they fled. They hit, she was involved in a hit and run and she actually spent several days in pain. She had neck pain and was on muscle relaxers and we just felt like, wow, this is, 
this is amazing. Like, we feel like we're a bit under attack. So I shared with the uh, leadership team that we need to be on guard against these kind of attacks, that we need to be aware of the fact that we are, we are a threat to the kingdom that wants to divide us, right? There's a kingdom in this world, forces in this world, that want to divide us, to keep us separate. But roots exist to destroy those dividing walls. We are a threat to that kingdom. And the very next day, uh, a member of our leadership team, Zhang, fell off a ladder at work and hit his head. And it was really, really scary because um, doctors and others were concerned that Jean could have bleeding in the brain or brain damage. And so he was under uh, supervision by the doctors and I, I have good news to report. He has passed all his evaluations and he has gone home. So that's, we prayed. The thing, I, the thing I want to say about this is that I was so impressed with our community. The moment the word got out that Zhang had had an accident, I saw people like, what can I do? I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. Is there anything else I can do? I'm going to pray. And people prayed. We prayed. We prayed in our small group. Uh, I know the leadership team prayed together. And so we prayed. We showed up for Zhang and Miranda. And, you know, praise God, Zhang is doing much, much better. And so... I think that that's the kind of spirit we need to have as a multi-ethnic church. That we're going to show up for one another. We're going to be there in each other's lives when we need each other. And that's a, that's a concrete pathway to cultural hybridity. Alright, so in closing. Ephesians 2 boldly declares that Jesus made peace between people groups by destroying the dividing walls. And it calls us into the challenging but necessary and worth it adventure of kingdom hybridity. A sharing in each other's culture. A sharing in each other's lives that is centered in the humble and self-sacrificial love of Jesus. Let us walk in these pathways towards a new kind of human community. One that embodies the beauty and the power of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the ways that you love us. You love us in so many different ways. You love us personally, in powerful, intimate ways. We sense your love when we pray. We sense your love when we are out in the world, when we are with our friends, and we know that you love us in that way. But we also know that you love us in really tangible, practical concrete ways and a lot of the times you love us through one another thank you for the body of christ that is the hands and feet of your of your of your own life thank you for the ways in which we can love one another on your behalf thank you for the ways in which you have destroyed the dividing walls you've torn down our divisions and the things that keep us apart the forces that keep us divided and I pray that you would empower Roots Covenant Church to be a, a witness of cultural kingdom hybridity, that we would become a new form, a new kind of human community. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.